0: Hey friends. Morning. You're still in a turkey coma, I see. Good to see you. Uh, My name is Matt. If you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Um, Let's take the offering. Speaking of Thanksgiving, so ushers come on down and uh, we'll pass those baskets. Allow me to pray uh, before we do though, church. Would you join me in prayer? Uh, God, thank you. Thank you. For what you've given to us, and thank you that we get to receive so many good things from you, both big and small. So, Lord, we give today out of joy and thanksgiving and, uh, and abundance in your name. So, Lord, would you do great things for your name's sake here in Burlington and beyond. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. I have been asked by Pastor Scott to pass on a couple things to you this morning before we get into the message. Uh, So, the first thing is that, uh, as many of you have heard by now, Diane. Uh, her mother passed away a few weeks ago, uh, lived out in Minnesota. So Scott, Pastor Scott and Diane are out there with the family uh, preparing for a memorial service this week. They'll be there through the week. And uh, he just wanted me to express his gratitude for your prayers, for your notes. Uh, They're very encouraged by you knowing that uh, your support and your prayers are there for them. So he wanted me to let you know that. Thank you guys for being such a great, faithful, loving church, and um, uh, they appreciate that. He also wanted me to uh, express this. Last week, uh during scott 's sermon, uh, he mentioned uh, about free Bibles. We had them at the at the information desk and if you needed one, go grab one. but you know what happened as so often does We ran out we ran out of Bibles, so uh, we 've got a few more today yeah that 's a great thing to clap for, yeah. <laughs> We've got a few more today, and um, we're going to have even more next week. Shipping, Thanksgiving week, you know, it just kind of gets a little dicey. So uh, if you didn't get one last week or you're wanting one today, please go to the info desk. Uh, and if you don't get one today, come back. We've got, we're going to have them next week, I promise. So uh, please take advantage of that. Take one with you. They're for you. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, grab a Bible. And let me say this. Thanksgiving was Thursday. And we've been talking about it for weeks leading up to it, how at our North Avenue campus, uh, where I am most of the time, every Thanksgiving for years, we've been helping serve meals to uh, Burlington and beyond in partnership with St. Mark's Catholic Church, right up the street from us down there. Uh, We deliver meals to people's homes, but we also host an in-person meal at our North Ave campus. And we've been doing that for years. this year, it was even bigger and better than the last few years. Uh, we delivered and served over 850 meals this Thanksgiving. So that is, yeah, that's something to clap for. and. What a blessing it is, and thank you, church. Those of you who uh, participated by delivering, uh, by donating turkey or money or whatever it was, however you participated, thank you. And um, a big thank you to Bruce Crady, who's at our North Avenue campus for organizing it all. So if you know Bruce or you see him, please, please uh, give him a, a big thanks. He uh, he really does a lot of work for that. So I'm just so pleased because that. That Thanksgiving ministry that we do is, I think, one of the best things that we do, at least through our North Ave campus. We're feeding people, we're meeting people, we're enjoying a holiday uh, with people who might not otherwise have somewhere to go, and it is such an important thing. So thanks for participating in that and making this year even more awesome than last year and the year before. So thank you, church. Um, You know, I've, I've... I've been preaching a little bit over the last month or so, and Scott has been doing his big series that he concluded last week, the one question series, and I've kind of been jumping in every now and then interjecting, and maybe you remember or not, but I've been preaching uh, every time through a different one of Jesus' parables, one of his lesser known parables, the parables we don't talk so much about uh, in church as you know some of the more famous parables. So today we're coming to another parable. This one we find in Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27, and it's called the parable of the 10 minus, uh, and before we get to the parable and read it, I do want to give a little context, because I think the context helps us to really determine and, and understand the meaning of the parable. So let me give some context. This parable in Luke 19, uh, Jesus tells, kind of towards the end of his life, Luke 19, he's on his way to Jerusalem for the last time, for what will be the last days before he's crucified. So he's on the road, and he has just come through the city of Jericho. Jericho, pretty good-sized town. In Jericho, Jesus is mobbed. He is mobbed by the crowds there. They want to see him and touch him and hear from him and be healed by him. And he is just inundated with people. Um, so, So much so that a lot of people couldn't get close to him. There's hope in the air. There's excitement when Jesus comes to town because they've heard about this guy, all he's been doing. Now they get to see him in person and they're starting to think, could this be the guy? the Messiah we've been waiting for. Could this be him? So there's excitement and hope and anticipation in the air as Jesus comes to town. And the people flood the streets. They surround him. Uh, they can't get close to him, including one guy, a wee little man named Zacchaeus. Now, Z- Zacchaeus, we're told, is, uh, he's a little guy, short. Uh, shout out to my short friends out there. Uh, he's, he's a chief tax collector. He's wealthy, And we're told all this. Now, the way tax collecting worked back in the day is uh, tax collectors had like a certain region they were responsible for, and they would collect their quota to send to Rome. But anything they received over that quota, they would just get to keep. So oftentimes, tax collectors, they weren't favored and loved by people in the town because they would overcharge and basically steal money from people. And he'd keep that people, or keep that money. And that's what Zacchaeus has been doing to these people in, in Jericho. He's been overcharging and keeping the money. That's how he's gotten wealthy. But Zacchaeus, he's excited to see Jesus, but he's short. So he climbs up a tree, and he's up in the branches. And as Jesus is walking down the street, he looks up at Zacchaeus in the tree and says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house tonight. And everyone else is like, what? This guy? He's the worst. Why would he go to Zacchaeus' house? But Zacchaeus, so honored by this, pledges, because I think he's even feeling the excitement, to give everything he has away to the poor. If he's ever overcharged someone, he's going to give it back. And Jesus blesses him right then and there. And it's as this is happening, right after this moment with Zacchaeus, that Jesus tells the parable of the 10 minus. Two quick things I want to keep in mind as we read this parable. Number one is that there's a buzz in the air. People are excited. Is this the guy? The Messiah. Now what they thought the Messiah was going to do was go to Jerusalem where King David sat on his throne, kick out the Romans, and reestablish Israel as an independent sovereign nation. Is this the guy who's going to go do that? They're excited about that. Anticipation. The second thing to keep in mind is that Um, And I just find this interesting that Jesus is going to Jerusalem, right? The place of David's throne and the temple of God. And Jericho is about 30 miles east of Jerusalem and it's down in the Jordan Valley. And Jerusalem is up in the Judean hills. So that 30 miles is kind of an uphill climb. Jesus is literally going up and ascending to Jerusalem where David's throne is. And I find that poetic that the king is coming to his throne on high there up in the hills. I just find that poetic. So let's read the parable. We're gonna go to Luke chapter 19 and we'll start in verse 11. And it says this. So while they were listening to this, the crowds and the whole thing with Zacchaeus, while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. We'll pause for a sec. So while this whole thing is happening, crowds all around Jesus, Zacchaeus up in the tree, um, Jesus tells this parable. The people are excited. Is this the Messiah? And they're expecting him to head to Jerusalem to kick out Rome and sit on David's throne, reestablishing the kingdom of Israel. And that's why he tells this parable, it says. Because the people thought that the kingdom was gonna happen, as it says, all at once, Meaning, like, right now. He's going there now. This is happening now. Jesus is going to be our king now. And in a way, they're right. He is. But it's going to look very different from what they think. They're imagining a victory where Jesus sits on the throne. But what's about to happen to Jesus in Jerusalem, crucifixion, and that looks a lot more like defeat than victory. So he tells this parable. Go to verse 12. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minus. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. We'll pause there. So Jesus tells this parable and this story. Again, this is a made-up story to prove a point, parable. Jesus starts this story. There's a rich man leaving his home to travel to a distant country to be crowned king of his country, and he's going to come back as king. Now, this is what happens with empires, right? In the context of an empire, the the emperor and the, the central government were in one place and that one place was far away from much of the, the people they governed in the lands that they had conquered. And regional rulers would be appointed. But in order to have that power kind of given and conferred upon them officially, those rulers would travel to the emperor in the central location, have whatever has to happen there to say, okay, you're the guy. And then they go back officially as uh, sorry, governor or regional king of that land. And this had happened a few times in the decades leading up to Jesus there in Judea. Herod the Great, Archelaus, Herod Antipas, all three of these guys who were uh, in succession of each other ruling that region all traveled to Rome to have their powers officially stamped by the emperor and then come back to rule that region. So Jesus sets up the story with the rich man doing exactly that. He's going away to wherever the central government in this made-up story exists, to be made officially king or governor of his region and then to come back home to rule. But before he goes, he calls 10 of his servants to him and he gives them each one minus. Now, the minus is a, there's a lot of forms of currency in the uh, Bible to keep track of. This is one of them. A minus is sort of a measure of currency equal to about 100 days wages or so. So think about three months worth of work For a typical person, would earn about one minus. That's the the amount of currency. Um, That's a good amount of money, but it's not crazy. It's not that much. Uh, There's another parable Jesus tells called the parable of the talents that in some ways parallels this one where three workers are given one talent each and a talent is a measurement of money equal to about 60 times what a minus is worth. So the people in that parable, they kind of hit it big, right? They got, they got a lot of money. A minus, still a good amount of money. There's skin in the game. There's real consequences, but it's not, it's not winning the lottery or uh, you know this crazy amount of money. So 10 servants each get one minus with the charge from the soon-to-be king as he goes, put this money to work while I'm gone. Invest it, put it to work, do something with it, make it happen. But as he's leaving... The other citizens of the country make their feelings known. They send a delegation to tell the king, we don't like you and we don't want you to rule over us. We don't want you to be king. And then he goes with that message ringing in his ears. So Jesus sets up this parable essentially with kind of three characters. There's the king, there's the king's servants who are loyal to him, and then there's the citizens who hate him and don't want him to be king. So just put that in the back of your mind for a minute. Let me read the rest of the parable, and then we'll talk about it. Verse 15. So he goes away to be named king. It says, he was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, sir, your mina has earned 10 more. Well done, my good servant, the master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of 10 cities. The second came and said, sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking what I did not put in and reaping what I do not sow? Then why didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back I could have collected with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away and give it to the one who has ten. Sir, they replied, he already has ten. And the king replies, I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. And that's the end of the parable. What an ending. So uh, the newly crowned king, just to catch up, returns home, decides to find out what happened with his servants who he gave the money to. So he calls them in uh, to, to see how they put it to work. One servant earned 10 more minus, so the king puts him in charge of 10 cities. Another one earned five, so he gets five cities. Uh, They put the money to work, right? They produced with it. They did something. And then the third servant comes in with a little bit of a different story. He did not put that to work, that minus he was given. He hid it away. And he says, I laid it away. Um, uh, Where am I? He laid it away. And he says to the king, I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. Uh, this is not a compliment. The servant says, I'm afraid of you. I don't think you're a nice guy. And I didn't want to lose what you gave me, so uh, I, just, I just held it, kept it safe. I didn't want to risk your wrath if I lost it. The servant didn't put the money to work. That's what the king told him as he left, put this to work. He didn't lose it, but he didn't gain anything either. Essentially, I think what he tells the king here is like, you made me do this. (laughs) Because of who you are, I didn't feel comfortable doing, you know, putting this to work because if I lost it, I didn't know what you were going to do to me. And he seems to be placing blame on the king for his actions, I think this guy's trying to get out of being accountable. Um, By placing blame on the king, he's trying to say, hey, I didn't have any choice. I was so afraid of losing the money that I couldn't even think about what you asked me to do, putting it to work. This third servant missed the whole point of what's going on here. The king's command to them as he left and handed them that money was, it wasn't uh, make a profit. That's not what he says. The Greek is very clear here. He says, put it to work, do something, engage in business, engage in trade, put it to work. Uh, when I was in high school, way back when, when I was in high school, when gas was like a dollar a gallon, um, I think this was my senior year because I had my driver's license at the time. I remember that much, but I don't remember um, exactly when this was. Um, but our church growing up had a Sunday night service and the night service was different than the morning services. Uh, it was a little cooler. And, uh, so all the young people went there, the high schoolers, the college kids, the young adults, that was kind of our service in our community. And, uh, the sermon was different. And the guy who pastored the, the service, his name was Rob. Um, he preached at it, um, uh, pretty much every week. And one, one night we were there and, uh, during the sermon, Rob, he he has in his hand, he holds up six $100 bills. I don't remember anything else about this sermon except except the money. Give me that money, Rob. Um, But he held it up, six $100 bills, and uh, he said uh, to us, um, anyone is welcome to come and take one of these $100 bills if you are willing to do something with it. And as he said that, he also said, we're not going to follow up We're not going to keep tabs on you. You're not going to have a give account for it. You can put it in your pocket. You can pay off your bills, and we'd never know. But if you think you can do something with $100, come down and grab one of these bills. And uh, 17-year-old Matt um, found that to be a very appealing proposition. I thought, yeah, I could probably do something with that, but if if I don't, no one's going to know. And I found myself my feet walking down to the stage and there I was heading to grab one of those hundred dollar bills. I went up, a couple people I didn't know went up and then two other people I did know went up with me. My friend Nate and this other girl who I didn't really know very well at the time, her name uh, was Taylor. I'm married to Taylor now, like she's my wife. (laughs) This is not the story of how we started dating, so uh, maybe you'll get that another time. I don't know. Maybe not. Probably not. Uh, so, uh, you know, everything's great. <laughs> so uh, we walk up on stage, and there's six of us there, right? Three of us are high school students, and one of them is me. And uh, as a 17-year-old, I was kind of a lazy kid. I, I just kind of, you know, floated through school and did what I wanted and had fun. But I, 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 I was up there, lazy old Matt sitting there trying to think, like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? So I have this $100 bill, Rob prays. I go back to my, my seat with the, the money in my pocket. And I, had, I just had no clue what I was going to do. So a few days, of just trying to think and brainstorm, just nothing, nothing. And, of course, Lazy Matt gives up, 17-year-old Matt. Uh, maybe something will come along, but whatever. No one's going to know anyway. And I, I just kind of let it go and forgot about it. Uh, Not long later, and I can't remember if it was Nate who called me first or Taylor who called me, but Taylor had a great idea for what to do with her $100 and wanted to know if myself and Nate wanted to join her efforts for what she was going to do. And I said, yes, absolutely. I would love nothing more than to have you take it and do something with it, right? (laughs) So, um, but her idea was, it was this. Uh, in Danbury, Connecticut, where we grew up in the, you know, it's a pretty, pretty good-sized city. Uh, if you go to the bus station downtown every day, you'd see a pretty sizable group of day workers uh, hanging out there, hoping that contractors, someone would come by and say, I've got work. Would you like to come and, you know, earn for the day? Whatever, whatever it was. Um, And they'd get a fair amount of work, those guys. So they're there at the bus station. And Taylor's idea was, hey, winter's coming. Most of these guys are from Latin America or South America. Um, Winter gets pretty real up here in the Northeast. Uh, I bet they could use some coats. So the idea was we were going to purchase bunch of coats and come and hand it out to these guys. And Taylor, God bless her, she's just the greatest, she decided not only to take our $300 and buy as many coats as possible, but she organized a coat drive through our church and actually through another organization and um, went down that day with dozens and dozens of coats and had coffee and donuts and and everything to hand out to these guys. And yeah, she's great. And... um, (laughs) So I, she did everything, and I, I showed up that day. Yeah, I'd clap for my wife. She's, she's the best. Oh, I love her so much. And, um, but she did everything, and I showed up that day to help hand out coats and take whatever credit I could for myself. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, even though the initial giving of that money, right, on stage, there was no questions asked. We're not going to follow up any of that. Taylor, she did such a great thing. She was able to stand up and kind of tell everyone what we did, and, and um, she even did give me a little credit, even though I didn't do anything. So why do I tell you this uh, story? Well, because like the minus in the parable, that money, um, that experience in my life was, wasn't really about the money. It wasn't about gaining anything. It wasn't about investing it. It wasn't about uh, even just saving it and giving it back to the church later on, like that third servant and saying, "Here's back, Right? It's not really about the money. It was more about the engagement and the willingness and the vision to put it to work, to do something. So I had money in my pocket at that time, no vision for what I could do. And if I had been called to give account with what I did before Taylor's idea came along, I would have, I would have had to tell everyone I got nothing. And uh, kind of like that third servant the servants were asked to do something with the money they were given. The profit earned was nice and good, but the king's concern was to put it to work. The king's concern was with their engagement and their vision for what they could do. And remember, the servants are the king's men, right? They're the ones, they're loyal to the king. But the other citizens of their country were not loyal to the king. They did not want him to be their king. They hated hated him, it says. And I think the king used this money, the 10 servants, to test them. To test their skill and competency, yeah, sure. But more so to test their faithfulness. In a country where the king didn't have loyal subjects or faithful citizens, would these servants still engage in the king's business with the king's money, doing work on the king's behalf. And again, that amount of money was not insignificant. Three months' wages, that's that's not bad. It's pretty good. But to a nobleman, a king, a rich person, I mean that really wasn't that much. The investment and the earning from the minus was not the goal of this whole exercise. The minus was a test of faithfulness and of boldness and of willingness to do the king's business. Two servants showed their faithfulness, and the reward for their faithfulness was totally disproportionate to what they earned, right? One minus could barely put up a barn back then. And yet for each one earned, those servants earned a whole city to be in charge of, right? Ten cities for this one guy, five for the other guy. But the one servant who refused to do the king's business out of fear, his minus, that he hid away and gave back to the king, was taken from him. Then the parable ends. I'll read these verses again in in, uh, verse 26 and 27. The parable ends with the king saying, I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But for those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, Bring them here and kill them in front of me. This is, a, this is an interesting parable. I probably could have picked an easier one to preach on. It's an interesting parable. And I find uh, that I understand why churches don't talk about this one as much as like the parable of the Good Samaritan or um, the parable of the prodigal son. Because this parable has a few concepts that I think challenge our modern Protestant sensibilities about God and who he is and what he does. There's two concepts I find a little difficult about this parable, and I'm going to try to frame them in the form of questions. So let me share those with you. Two things I find difficult about this parable. The first one is um, Does God give to us in proportion to what we produce? The servants who invested and earned more money got more in proportion to what they earned, right? And the servant who earned nothing got nothing. So does God give us in proportion to what we produce? Is God's favor towards me dependent on how well I do? That's the first concept. The second concept I find hard is in those last words of the parable where the king brings in his enemies before him to be killed. Does God really do that? Is he vengeful like that? Isn't he forgiving? So I want to talk about these two concepts and these two questions. Uh, Again, kicking myself for choosing this parable. (laughs) But let's start with that second question Is God like a vengeful God? Is that how he is? All right, parables. Parables are stories, they're made up stories that invite us to see ourselves in the story, and uh, more important, to see God in the story and how we relate to him. That's what parables, uh, that's sort of the function of parables. And in this parable, we have three sort of groups of characters. We have a king, his servants, and uh, the citizens who hate him. And uh, depending on how uh, you view the king, you can see yourself in either of those groups of um, characters there. Uh, And I think... It's easy to see the king represents Jesus, represents uh, him. And then the, the other characters are us. So drawing that out, Jesus is a king who orders the people who reject his kingship to be killed. That's pretty shocking. It's pretty upfront. It's uh, pretty graphic. The, the, the word translated in this as kill actually is the word slay, which is uh, <laughs> that's a pretty graphic word. It's not very nice. And I think it goes against what most of us Christians would say about who Jesus is, right? He's forgiving, he's loving, he died for us. Uh, Let the little children come to me, right? Jesus is the good guy. He's the good guy. So, uh, what do we do with this? How do we take this picture of Jesus ordering people to be killed? And there's other parables that express similar sentiments. Like in Luke 12, there's a parable called the parable of the returning master, at the end of which the people unfaithful to the master are uh, dismembered, not just killed, dismembered. That's pretty rough. (laughs) It's pretty shocking. It's offensive. But I think it grabs our attention and it forces us to question why Jesus would say this, right? We have to deal with it somehow. In the history of the church, one of the great... Early controversies uh, centered around the uh, thought process and theology of a man named Martian of Sinope, kind of in the second century, late first, early second century. And Martian had some, had some wacky ideas, but some of the biggest ones that he's known for was uh, his rejection of the Trinity: Father, Son, spirit, one God, three persons. And he said that Jesus and God were two separate uh, kind of uh, gods from one another with God, the Father, kind of the Hebrew God of the Old Testament, who's a little more violent and vengeful, right? And, and does some, some things there in the Old Testament. And Jesus is the nice, benevolent, loving, forgiving God of the New Testament. And they're two separate guys. And he believed this so heavily that he actually took the Bible and went to the New Testament and everything that referenced the Old Testament or made Jesus look bad, like, well, bad, but made Jesus look violent like the Old Testament God, he took out. Took out of the Bible. This passage was one of those passages that he took out. It's this, you know, he's talking about killing people. And Martian gained quite a following throughout the second century, so much so that the church leaders from all over the Roman Empire said, we got to deal with this. We got to figure out, like, define what it." The Trinity is, and some other things, so we can properly um, speak against this uh, heresy that this guy Martian is is uh, is talking about. So the church leaders got together and discussed and debated and wrote some of the early theological concepts uh, that they had not had to deal with yet. Passages like this, throughout two thousand years of church history, force us humans to reconcile what we believe and what we know about Jesus. His character, his goodness, and yeah, even, even his wrath. Think back to last week. Pastor Scott was preaching, and he talked about uh, the fear of the Lord. Maybe some of you remember that. He talked about fear of the Lord. Excuse me. And as he did, he shared this verse. It's Proverbs 9, 10. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And the way Pastor Scott defined fear of the Lord is, uh, was as kind of awe and submission to him, right? Recognizing how great he is, how little we are, and then submitting to him and saying, I'll follow you, God, not myself, I'll follow you. And that's how Pastor Scott defined fear of the Lord. And I agree with that. I think that's good and right. So please don't take what I'm about to say as contradicting Pastor Scott. Never in my wildest dreams would I ever, ever think about saying something <laughs> against what Pastor Scott said. But I just want to... I want to add to this conversation a little bit, because uh, I think it's all in line together with fear of the Lord. So let me, let me just stick with me through this moment. Um, I think it's healthy to fear God, like be a little bit afraid of him. I think that's healthy. And there's a little bit of fear that we should all be walking around with, because he's God, right? He blinked the world. He like spoke and things came into being. Like, that's why we're here, because God said, let there be light. And light existed, right? I can't do that. Can you do that? No. He uh, superintends the universe. I'm only breathing because God is allowing me to breathe. Like, that's the reality of of God, you know? He's big and mighty, and he's great. So much bigger than any of us. Let me read from Revelation chapter 1, where uh, John is given a picture of Jesus, kind of in this, like, heavenly way, and uh, he wrote down what he saw here in Revelation 1, starting in verse 13. He says, "'Among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man,' Uh, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was like uh, white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire. And his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And his right hand, he held seven stars. Like, I can't hold stars in my hand. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. I mean, he's big and brilliant and mighty and so much bigger and greater than any of us. And um, this is what happens when John sees this in verse 17. It says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Like he passes out when he sees Jesus. Like the, the, he's so afraid he passes out. He can't stand before him. And Jesus, look what happens next. As verse 17 goes on. It says, John says, Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. We could be afraid of him. He is mighty and big, he holds the keys of death and Hades. Like, that's crazy. He's the living one, first and the last. We could and maybe should be afraid, but when we fear, Jesus reaches down to John, he touches him and says, Do not be afraid. Do not. We should be afraid of him, but we don't have to be afraid of him. He is mighty and big, and yeah, there's a sword coming out of his mouth. That's scary. (laughs) But he's good, and he loves you. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Awe and submission. This parable that Jesus tells is about the kingdom of God, right? He, we're told that at the beginning. He's going to Jerusalem to die on a cross, not capture a throne and kick out the Romans, as everyone assumes. And I think in part, Jesus uses this offensive, shocking language to capture the attention of his audience, right, who all have assumptions about, uh, about what he's going to do and who are all going to be let down by what actually happens. And the shocking end to this parable, I think in part, is meant to break through indifference and apathy and callousness and those things that prevent us, even religious people, from grasping the reality of the kingdom of God. It forces us to, to think about it in a different way. But I think it also, and more importantly, reminds us that outside of Jesus and relationship with him and his kingship in our life, outside of that, there's no life. There is no life. Being citizens of his kingdom, with him as our king, is where we find life and purpose and joy and peace and eternity Living under the rule of the king is the only place that can be found in awe and submission to him. <laughs> Here's some other words from the book of Proverbs about the fear of the Lord I want to share. Awe and submission, right? Proverbs ten twenty seven says, the fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. Proverbs fourteen twenty seven says, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. Proverbs 19.23 says, The fear of the Lord leads to life, so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. With him as our king, living in his kingdom, there is life. Outside of that, there is no life. That leads to death. Death. go back to the first question, concept of productivity. In the parable, the king rewards the servants in proportion to what they earn with their minus, right? Guy earns 10 minus, he gets 10 cities, five cities, no cities. So does God bless us in proportion to what we produce or how well we do? Is his favor on us the more more stuff we do and the better we, you know, serve him? Well, in one sense, yeah, but in another sense, no. So let me explain that. You know, I've learned over the years uh, that God does not favor people over other people. Yeah, I, I know people that have served in ministry for years and years, for decades, and they are just miserable. And they give and they give and they work and they try and, and uh, their lives and their hearts and family and everything, they, they're burnt out and broken and surviving day to day, wondering where is God in all of this that I'm doing for you, God? And, and I'm not just talking about like that internal mental health stuff, I'm talking about like constant car troubles or uh, health issues, debilitating health issues, things like that. And then I know people who say they're Christians who do some pretty, uh, you know, questionable stuff, shady things. that are happy as a clam, right? Money in the bank, healthy, healthy family, thriving. By all measure, we would say, hey, you're, you seem like you're blessed. Jesus actually tells a parable about this in, uh, you know, go figure. In Matthew chapter 20, um, kind of parallels this. Uh, no, that's the parable of the talents. It's a parable of the uh, returning master, it's called. And uh, this master has a vineyard, and he, uh, he hires some uh, day workers to come and work from morning to, you know, to the end of the day. And he says, I'll give you a silver coin for your day's labor. But uh, as the day goes on, he goes and brings in more people late in the day, only a couple hours of work ahead of them. And he says, I'll pay you a silver coin for the couple hours you work. Same pay for you know, varying degrees of work. And of course, as I would be, and I'm sure many of us would be, if we had been there all day, we'd be like the people in this parable who grumble and say, hey, how come they get the same as me? I've been working longer and harder and here all day, and they're only here for a couple hours. And in the parable, the, the owner of the vineyard um, says to them, uh, I, I've paid you what I promised, and you're mad at me because I'm being generous to these people. God's favor is not dependent on our productivity, He gives us all the same gift of Jesus, of eternal life and of joy and of purpose and of hope in this life. He gives us all that same gift, the same call. But I have also learned that I am able to understand and experience the joy and favor of God most when I am serving him. When I work to do his business is when I feel his blessing the most. And you can ask my wife about this. Um, when I come home from doing ministry, whether it's a day of preaching or of uh, our young adult group on Monday nights or if I'm meeting with people throughout the day, uh, those are the times when she can't get me to shut up when I'm at home. And I'm usually, I'm usually just brr, nothing. Nothing. But when I come home from those days, she's like, who are you, <laughs> right? So the energy and the life and the joy of serving God fills me with, with something that I can't get from whatever I'm doing on my own time and for myself. It's different. God, as I serve him, I've experienced that he fills me and blesses me in a different way, some way I can't do it for myself. Uh, Paul Tripp, he's a pastor and author, and, and he's been doing that for decades, and he, he writes in his book, Lead these words, and I think this is so spot on because it's what, it's what I've experienced over and over again in my life. He says, the joy of a true servant is not power. The joy of a true servant is not control. The joy of a true servant is not a claim. The joy of a true servant is not comfort or ease. And of course, the joy of a true servant is not position. What gives a servant joy in being a servant is Service something happens when we live in the calling Jesus has on us right to put his minus to work in our lives whatever that looks like something happens and it seems backwards that as we give ourselves away it's time and energy and being out of the house and we could be doing other things but we you know the to-do list backs up when we when we engage in ministry and serve god as we give ourselves away He gives back to us, and by all human measure, we should feel empty at the end of the day, but he actually fills us with joy and energy and life. When we serve our king, that's when we take hold of the blessings he has for us. And it's not material. It is spiritual. Living in the kingdom here and now allows us to prosper in our souls. So no, God does not bless us in proportion to our production, but he does bless us in our working for his kingdom and our serving him. He's called everyone who would follow him to put his gift to work. And when we do what the king asks us to do, we can feel that. We can be joyful in service. We can be blessed as we bless. And we can truly live as we give ourselves away. So, uh, if you follow Jesus, or you call this church home, and you aren't serving him regularly, I'd ask you, why not? Why not? The king has gifted you and called you to do his kingdom work. And I know, I know you're busy. I know you're tired. I am too. I really am. And it's hard, it's hard to want to get to it. It's hard to think about putting that date on the calendar and committing to something. I, I, I feel that very deeply, but I promise serving him is the, the antidote. It's, the, it's grabbing hold of the joy in, in his call on us. I've never in my you know, years of doing ministry, never once talked to someone after serving in ministry who said, man, I really wish I had not done that I really regret that. Never heard that once. Because in him is life, and in working for him is blessing, and, and he doesn't leave you hanging. So if you aren't serving, why not? Why not now? You know the ministries of our church need you to happen. They, they don't just happen on their own, right? We've got kids ministries, we've got youth ministries, and the worship team full of volunteers and people like you who just said, "Hey, I'm going to do this. I'm going to serve in this way." Greeters and ushers and and uh, missions and and so many ways you can serve. And outside of our church, there's so many ways you can serve as well. So plug in. Put God's gift to work. Take hold of that life-giving blessing that, when we serve, He uh, He gives to us in ways we can't give to ourselves. Plug in, and live in God's kingdom here and now. So this week, just I want you to think about that. Where Where is God calling you to serve? What has He gifted you with? What is He What are you passionate about? And where can you plug in? If I know we could. We need you. This church needs you. This world needs you. God has called you to put to work what he has gifted you with and to receive the blessing it is to serve him, our good and faithful king. Church, would you stand? Let's close in prayer. God, thanks for inviting us into the work of your kingdom because while it can be hard work, oh man, is it good work to see lives changed to see mourning turn into joy. To see people open their eyes and see you, the God who created them and loved them. God, that there is nothing like what you have called us to do in your kingdom. So Lord, help us to see, to see where we fit, to see what you've gifted us with and how we, how we can plug in and serve you, our good and faithful king. Thank you um, that we... <laughs> That we find life in you because it's true outside of you it's there is no life working in my own power and for my own desires it just is, it's beats beats us down it makes us tired and anxious and, and maybe cynical but working for you lord is joy and blessing and thank you for inviting us so god as we go this week Would you open our eyes to see where and how we can serve you, our good king, and to bring joy to people? And Lord, would you uh, continue to bless us with your presence and the joy um, that comes with serving you? So God, thank you. We praise you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, Amen, church. Oh, it's been great to be with you. We'll see you again soon. Enjoy the warm weather. And uh, we'll see you soon.